My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gents, after a small hiatus, we are back with another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and today on the show, I had the chance to sit down with none other than Dan Wilton, the CEO of First Mining Gold. Dan is relatively new to First Mining, having joined the company and been brought on by Keith Newmeyer as the CEO recently. But leading up to this, he's had a very long and very interesting career on the finance side, and that includes a lot of time as an investment banker, where he's been involved in billions of dollars of deals, and more recently, as a partner at Pacific Roads Capital, a private equity firm based out of Australia. Now, Dan led their Canadian office here in Vancouver, and talking to Dan was something I'd been wanting to do for some time now. Because he really understands the private equity model in the mining sector. And if you're not in that, if you don't know people that are working in private equity, it can be very, very opaque for an outsider. So in this conversation, we really get into how private equity works, the role that it fills in the mining sector, the opportunity that it represents to uh, both mining companies and investors that are investing alongside private equity firms and how these firms function and make money. I found it extremely interesting and something that I'd been wanting to learn about for some time now. I think this conversation will add a lot of value to anyone who's interested in development stage assets, where private equity plays a big, big role in helping to finance these things. There's very, very few investors in the mining sector that are able to write multi-hundred million dollar checks, the kind that are necessary to build these large mines, to develop projects, to actually get these things off the ground. And Dan is able to really provide listeners with an inside view of how that works and the value it can add, and of course, things to watch out for for investors. Dan has a really interesting background. Uh, He's traveled all over the world. He spent time in Russia and a lot of other places. And because of that, he was able to develop a really unique view on mining, on gold and precious metals, and on investing in general. Uh, There's few people that I've gotten to meet in this space that have had the breadth of experience that he's had. I had an awesome time talking to Dan today, and I think that listeners at home are really going to enjoy this and are going to learn a lot from our conversation. So without further ado, let me please introduce Dan Wilton, CEO of First Mining Gold. Dan. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast today. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. So we have uh, had the chance to speak on a few occasions in the past, uh, and we've kicked around some similar circles in Vancouver, but now you have got a new job. Yeah. You're in a new office and we're we're sitting out we're sitting in it now in the boardroom looking out at the Fairmont Hotel here in Vancouver. <laughs> and today we're going to talk about your career, what led you where you are today and a lot of different steps along the way. But for people who might not have heard your name before, 
would you be able to give us the 30,000 foot view of who Dan Wilton is and what your role is today? Okay. Uh, well, that's a pretty existential question, but uh, <laughs> I'll try and tackle with the uh, with the the role first. So I'm the CEO of First Mining Gold, um, which is a 150 million market cap gold developer with a bunch of great projects in Canada. Um, uh, in terms of who I am, uh, you know, my background, uh, particularly in the mining industry, goes back about 25 years, largely in corporate finance and principal investing. So um, I did my undergrad degree in commerce at Queen's University um, and then worked uh, between New York and Toronto for most of the 1990s in investment banking, mostly doing large cap M&A and equity raising for mining companies. So we have something in common that I didn't know about until this conversation, but I'm actually from Kingston, Ontario. Are you really? Yeah. So well, there you go. I uh, I ended up going to U of T a little bit down the road just to get out of Kingston. Just which, to get out of which Kingston, which most people who grew up in <laughs> Kingston do. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. So were you there? You were there for an undergrad in commerce, so you were there for four years. Four years. Yeah. yeah. So I think I always think I would have gone to Queens had I not been from Kingston. It was it's a it was a good place to grow up, and it was also a. A good time to escape, I would say. Well, it's, you know, it's such an interesting community in and around the school, you know, because it's one of the few schools in Canada where 90% of the student body is living away from home. Uh, mm-hmm. So that means you kind of have to create your own community. And that's not happening like at McGill. That happens in Montreal where you have all of the, you know, the joys and distractions of a big city around you. You growing up in Kingston, knowing that, you know, it's other than students, it's a town of about 60,000 people. Yeah. We had to make a lot of our own fun, which was awesome, and we did. Um, But (laughs) it really creates this kind of sense of community in your class. And Queen students have a reputation uh, as a townie, as a Kingston townie. I can say Queen I wasn't. Students, I wasn't going to say Queen it. students have a reputation for creating an awful lot of fun. And, they uh, do create an awful lot of fun at uh, often at um, inconvenient hours for our yeah. town's people that live around us. So one of my high school teachers, what, what's that party street where all the students lived on Aberdeen? Uh, yeah, so she lived, I think, right adjacent to that, and she like had like a vendetta against Queen students. I think she's moved since then, but she... So for the viewers at home who are getting lost in this conversation, there's a street in Kingston at Queen's University that's pretty much all student housing. It's and about it's two blocks long. A disaster. A 150-year-old brick houses uh, yeah. that have been lived in by students for 75 years, probably. A few years ago during a party at homecoming, uh, I believe a car was flipped over and lit on fire, so that should give a... <laughs> Somewhat of a of a description of the of the scale that can occur there. Yeah, now they've the the school's done a very good job of reining that in and trying to keep the spirit of the fun. I was actually at my twenty fifth undergrad reunion. Uh, yeah, twenty fifth undergrad reunion last year. So, uh, and we were on Aberdeen Street, and uh, by the time we got there, it was pretty quiet because the party had started and had been shut down. So. See, you can hear our different perspectives from student versus townie here. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But you came from an even smaller town originally, right? Yeah, you were I was, from Manitoba. Yeah, I uh, was born in Brandon, Manitoba, and uh, lived there till kind of grade six, and then uh, spent my junior high and high school years in Winnipeg. So it's part of that one of the 
great things that I love about this opportunity at First Mining is, you know, Winnipeg is kind of the main service center and nearest big city to all of our projects. So I actually get to swing through Winnipeg pretty frequently now, which is great. My parents are still there. Still got a lot of friends there. So, yeah, it's wonderful. So what was it that, I guess, first attracted you to business uh and then you know a commerce degree in queens it's one of the best schools in canada a lot of people end up as accountants a lot of people end up as bankers you can do whatever you want after that what how did your career end up steering into the mining space yeah well that's that's an interesting question the how into business uh my dad was an entrepreneur actually had uh what was at the time one of the biggest um, Ford heavy truck dealerships in Western Canada uh, that he had kind of taken over a a small car dealership from his dad and built it up in the 70s and 80s uh, into what was quite a sizable enterprise. So I kind of grew up with a dad who had his own business and worked really, really hard and, uh, you know, always kind of had that um, as part of the ethos growing up in sort of a business family. Um, uh, so that that and uh, actually got involved in junior achievement when I was in high school, and that was a really really formative experience for me. And for those of you who don't know much about junior achievement, it's a great program that runs in a lot of high school communities where high school kids set up companies basically and decide to make a product and learn a lot really from a hands on perspective about business. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic organization. And are there local? business leaders and entrepreneurs that give their time to that and help yeah, mentor yeah. and is, is that yeah yeah every every company that you form has two or three volunteer advisors yeah. who are people from you know generally from the local business community and they kind of help provide guidance and and lead the the company through you know some um learning materials as you kind of learn about what a company is and what you have to do and what profit is. But, you you know, you really learn a lot about the actual dynamics of starting a business. So so what was your business? Uh, we had a couple of them. Uh, I can't remember what the one was the first year. The second one, uh, we made trivets, which is a classic, you know, um, pot holder okay. that you would put yeah, yeah. on a table so you don't burn it. Um, and it was pretty simple, basically a piece of tile with two kind of wooden pieces on the either end that we glued on the bottom of the tile. And then you'd sell them, you know, to your friends and family and go door to door and learn all about how you try and, you know, set up trade booths to sell products. Um, so that was, uh, that was the second year. And the third year we had, uh, tie dyed t-shirts, which we made ourselves <laughs> and sold. So yeah, both the companies great learning experiences uh you know we sold all the products that we made which was an important part of it and you know you actually make money and you return a dividend to your to your investors like you have your friends and family buy shares and oh really yeah it's it's a really really interesting program that i would tell you should be you know kind of part of compulsory education i didn't even know that that was a thing i know i'd never seen that that's interesting there's a really big chapter i've not been involved with it uh but there's a quite a, a big chapter here in in the lower mainland that's pretty active. So, hmm. in terms of you know organizations that encourage entrepreneurship, it's amazing. So, anyway, that that kind of got me interested in pursuing a degree in commerce. So right. that was kind of the why business. 
and then as I went through, what kind of got me interested in finance, uh, as I was going into my fourth year of university, um, you start thinking about recruiting and uh, trying to find a job when you come out. And just so happened, my dad had left the book Barbarians at the Gate lying around home uh, over the summer that uh, between my third and fourth year university. And that's basically the story of uh, the KKR takeover of RJR Nabisco, which ended up being made into a movie. And yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating story of, um, you know, kind of a snapshot in the time at the end of the 80s of, um, you know, kind of the, the confluence of the beginning of what was the private equity business, essentially, yeah. these old leverage buyouts. This was the biggest one ever done at the time, which would be probably pretty modest by comparison. Now, was it? Uh, it was hostile, I assume. Uh, it was. It was contested on a whole, yeah. uh, uh, a whole number of fronts, um, and it was the management who was trying to buy it, and then outside <laughs> investors who were trying to buy it, and other companies. Anyway, it's a it's a fascinating story, but basically, it's it's all of the personalities around this big corporate takeover. So what was the side that really resonated with you? Was it the management team building up this company or was it the, the private equity firms and the and the, the finance guys that are coming in and taking it? It was kind of the it was kind of the whole thing. I was fascinated by the kind of by the process and by the environment. And what you kind of see in the in the book is uh, you know, lots of people working really, really hard on this deal to kind of try and make this deal come together and all the different personalities and, and you know, the entrepreneurs that were involved in it. And I think that's that's a big part of it. You know, the the financiers, the people like, you know, KKR, Henry Kravis, was a, an amazing entrepreneur in his own light in the fact that, you know, he and a few other people really kind of invented the private equity business yeah. in a sense. Like it was... You know, it was just a, a, a pale shadow of what it is today. Back then, they were they were reasonably kind of small funds. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. What scale were they on? I can't even tell you. Yeah. Uh, right now, what you that know, was, but it's funny. I always think these things that sort of chance events or or you know books you read that really stick in your mind for you know the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, when I was eighteen. I was doing a mining engineering degree at that point. I was kind of not loving it. Uh, it was uh, a little boring, I thought. And then I read, uh, I still remember this, I remember where I was living and everything, I read the big score. Uh, and then it completely changed my perspective. And I was like, now that is something I can see myself being interested in. And I was like, I'll grind through this engineering degree and learn calculus. But, you know, that's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal. That's the goal. Uh, yeah, yeah. The excitement and the, you know, the high finance... Well, High finance might be overly generous for that, but uh, but uh, you know these these big deals that occur yeah. and how exciting that can be. Yeah, yeah. Now, so that was that was kind of what got me uh, interested in investment banking, and then you know, lucky enough being at Queens that there was pretty active on campus recruiting. So mm-hmm. we had firms like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Solomon Brothers and you know RBC and BMO and lots of big uh, corporate finance type jobs that came to recruit your analyst positions uh, from the school. So we had a good opportunity to meet a bunch of people who were working in these environments and, you know, lots of the existing 
students who are a year or two older than us that were in their first year or two in, right. the, in those analyst programs come back and you can actually really kind of get a sense for what they love about it um, and uh, particularly get a real sense of how hard they work. Yeah. Because uh, you got to get the time, you really had to go into that job with your eyes wide open because it was, you know, the great news is it was five years of work condensed into two years. Yeah. Because there were a lot of year, a lot of weeks you'd be doing, you know, in excess of a hundred hours a week as you were, as you were grinding it out, but, um, an amazing learning experience. So anyway, I went through that, um, kind of on campus recruiting process and met a few people in Morgan Stanley, uh, that just seemed like a really good cultural fit. Um, and uh, they seemed fit to offer me a job. And as it turns out, a lot of the people who uh, I met for the first time kind of through that process are still great friends and mentors and people who've, been, uh, who've really been an important part of my whole career. Where did you end up, in New York or Toronto? or? Uh, it was kind of a two-year analyst program. And so the first year I was in New York and then the second year back up in Toronto. Okay. So And, and that, when you were at Morgan Stanley, did you start getting into the mining sector at that point, or were you a general analyst, or what, what were you focused on? Yeah, you know, you, you talk about those uh, great chance occurrences in your life that uh, ultimately steer you in a direction. Um, went down to New York uh, and was working in the M&A group at Morgan Stanley in kind of a <coughs> generalist analyst pool, mm-hmm. and... Um, Lo and behold, one of the first deals that uh, came in the door that they needed someone to work on was a mining deal. So they kind of looked around the, I don't know, hundred of us or so that uh, were working in the M&A group at the time and said, well, I don't know, why don't we give this mining deal to the Canadian kid because he must know something about mining because he's (laughs) Canadian. Uh, Which, you know, there was a little bit more method to the madness in that I was going to be going back up to Toronto to work with uh, a guy named Tom Barber who was running the, um, uh, the global mining group at Morgan Stanley at the time. Um, and so they thought, well, I'll give you some of that experience. So literally from day one, the first things that you start working on, the first thing I started working on were mining deals. And then you pretty quickly get to the point where you're one of only three or four people sort of at your level that speak mining, right? Once you learn the difference between a reserve and a resource and you learn how you look at comparables and you learn, you know, what a mining DCF model looks like. Yeah. No one wants to recreate the wheel. And at the time, in the early 90s, um, everyone of my peers wanted to be working in different fields, whether it's consumer products or aerospace or defense or high tech or real estate. Everyone of my peers kind of had in their mind something that they would rather be doing than mining because it's mining. Those of us who live in this industry know, um, you know, it's a, it's a very much kind of an acquired niche yeah, uh, sure. taste, but yeah. And that, that was it from that point. Literally most of my career from that point has been focused on the mining industry. I want to, um, you know, you touched on private equity earlier mm-hmm. and a big part of your career has been in the, that, that side of the space and specifically with Pacific Roads, uh, based out of Australia, but you were the head of the office here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't mind if we could take a few minutes and chat about the role of private equity in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it would be very valuable for listeners at home, and, and you know what, myself, to hear your definition of what private equity actually is and, and how that compares to <laughs> other financing sources versus a hedge fund, for example, yeah. or, or other you know, sovereign wealth funds or, or what have you. What is private equity and how is it differentiated from a traditional fund or mutual fund or what have you? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can give you my uh, view of it, but the definitions change depending on who you're talking to. But I will tell you, uh, you know, I started at Pacific Road in 2013. And um, at that time, I think two thirds of the conversations I had in my first couple of years at Pacific Road when I was talking to potential investee companies was explaining what we thought private equity was, which was different than what everyone else thought private equity was. So I'll give you my definition as a former you know, private equity investor and a, and a partner in a private equity fund. I think of private equity as um, institutionally raised, um, limited uh, duration, so usually 10-year limited life, um, funds that are given for... Uh, quasi or full control investments. That's my definition of private equity. And so when you, okay, so let's break that down. So institutional investors, that is your LPs. Generally your LPs. And when I think of that, that's... uh, Are they like endowment funds and health? Traditional U.S., uh, predominantly U.S.-based private equity investors, which would be endowment funds, corporate pension funds, um, some family offices, some sovereign wealth funds, uh, you know, depending on on the private equity group, some of them will get allocations. Yeah. And so these guys will say, you know what, we want to devote 5% of our capital to the mining metals, precious metals sector. Let's give it to Pacific Roads or Resource Capital Funds or whoever, because these guys seem to know what they're doing. Generally, yes, although the percentage of allocation, I think most would struggle to see five. Yeah. Um, generally, mining private equity kind of gets lumped into one of two buckets. It's either natural resources uh, or often it's in a bucket called real assets. And so uh, natural resources will, will include energy, um, will include some things like uh, agriculture, timberlands, things like that. Um, Sometimes power producers, but those tend to kind of be more on an mm-hmm. industrial uh, allocation. And then real assets is generally natural resources plus real estate yeah. and any other, you know, kind of in theory hard asset bucket. So just out of curiosity, does it ever fall into like a venture investment portion of that? Or is that something that's that sort of nomenclature is reserved for tech and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's Jamie, it's a really it's a fine line. And I see a lot of parallels there personally. Yeah, uh, particularly if if you are investing in a uh, you know pre-construction mining project, there's a lot of parallels with venture capital, and that you're dealing generally with um, companies that don't have revenue or cash flow. So their only source of development capital is you know continuing to raise more capital. Um, they don't have any means to be kind of self-funding. And so that does introduce a certain amount of risk in that development time frame. And the results can often be quite binary. 
Well, and the earlier stage you go, the more venture right. capital it is, right? So if you're talking about exploration, that's a classic venture capital portfolio approach where I'm going to allocate $100, I'm going to put $10 into 10 things, and one of them I think is going to be 20x, and five of them are going to return their capital, maybe a little bit of a profit, and you know, four of them are going to be zeros. And uh, on balance, the portfolio approach, which is what you end up taking in venture capital as yeah. well, uh, that portfolio approach will yield you know, uh, a return in excess of what you would get measured just against a traditional benchmark. Okay. In theory. But that's one of the things that we really struggled with and one of the things our limited partners struggled with. There are two big parts of that when you look at, at the performance of private equity in the mining industry. One is time frame. Yeah. And the 10-year limited life funds, generally speaking, have proven to not be long enough if you are trying to see a project through permitting construction right. and into production. And, you know, on the surface, you'd think that it would be, right? 10 yeah. years is a long time. Very, very few people make 10-year investments. Yeah. Um, so I guess you're looking at uh, like an annualized IRR, essentially, right? Well, there's, there's an element of that, but there's, there's also an element of when are, when are you going to hit the value milestones in the development of a project, when you're going to be able to find liquidity. Mm-hmm. And that really depends on the state of the mining kind of strategic market at the time. Because in 2010, 2011, you know, we were involved in, in uh, selling a bunch of projects when we were at National, which today, if you looked at them, they're, they're, they're great producing mines. Uh, or their mines that have been taken from when we sold them through, you know, through feasibility and permitting. Um, and right now, a lot of those projects are struggling to attract capital. But for example, we sold a company called Richfield Ventures to New Gold mm-hmm. for in excess of $500 million in a pre-PEA stage. So when you look at that in 2011, whenever that was, the runway for that company to get to its full feasibility and permitting, and they've just got their permits here in BC. The team's done a great job. Mm-hmm. It's a great project. It's huge like 10 million ounces. Um, but in this environment you where they need to it. find a couple of billion dollars of capital, you're just not seeing value attributed to these projects, which is you know, comes back a little bit to what's the value in a, in a first mining gold. We have some amazing projects. We really do. But they're the kind of projects like Springpole that are out of favor right now. But that's because... You know, every mining project developer is struggling to find a way to raise capital because the traditional sources of capital have all changed dramatically in the last five years, whether it's your, you know, your traditional kind of Toronto-based dedicated resource managers. Uh, You know, a bunch of their business has been uh, basically flowing to passive funds. Mm -hmm. Um, And those passive funds, what a lot of people seem to forget is that it's very difficult for a passive fund to help you with money to go build your mine. Yeah. And so those, I don't know if I'm calling it the right term, but those sort of deal focused investors, you know, that are investing in building spring, uh, spring pole or funding an exploration program, whatever it might be, they've Mm -hmm. kind of dried up then now. Well, that, I, I think that, uh, that role has really fallen to um, 
the private equity groups, and they're yeah. well suited for construction capital, right? If you have all your permits, you're going to build now. Your build's going to be two to three years. You then take a year for commissioning. They can have reasonable visibility that that asset is going to have, you know, its value kind of maximized the moment that it's been proven to work and when it still has most of the rest of its mine life and all the capital's been yeah. spent. That is the highest value and the time for strategic exit. So private equity groups are well set up for that. The challenge is that not many of them have the ability to mobilize a billion dollars to build a project. Right. So you've seen, you know, you've seen Orion, who's done a great job in mobilizing big chunks of, uh, of capital into into um, developing companies. You've seen a Cisco that's, you know, been very creative in, in mobilizing big amounts of capital to go into projects. But, um, you know, beyond that, that has traditionally really just been the realm of the strategic investor slash strategic acquirer. And the project gets to the point where it's ready to build. And if you've had a strategic partner with you along the way, they know it and understand it. And then it just kind of becomes a cost of capital issue. You can either um, go out in a tough market to, to try and raise capital from a variety of sources, which you got to juggle three or four different sources to come up with what you need if you can get something of the size. If you can do it at all. If yeah. you can do it at all. Um, or logically, that opportunity falls to you know a, a, a mine operator who will have a significantly lower cost of capital. They can borrow money on a corporate balance sheet. Um, they have cash flow to be able to fund it. Maybe they have an accumulated cash balance to be able to build out. So those kind of strategic partners have become so important in this environment not only because they take away the, you know, the um, concern about near-term liquidity, but they also give a line of sight on confidence that if you have a project that is robust enough, that it's going to get built. And we're seeing a lot of that today now, right? Strategics yeah. moving out and taking positions in smaller companies. And, and, you know, what do you, in your view, having allocated capital for so long... Mm-hmm. What do you think the game plan is there? Uh, well, if uh, I had the luxury of a cash-rich, huge balance sheet, um, I would be starting to look at what does my production pipeline, what does my development pipeline look like in the mid-2020s? And, you know, I know from some of the discussions that, that uh, we have had and are having, like that's... That's starting to be uh, a topic of focus again. That hasn't been a topic of focus since 2012, really. It's been cost containment. It's been sell assets. It's been repair balance sheets. It's been lower your all-in sustaining cost, much of which the industry, we don't talk about it, but much of which has been done by changing cutoff grades. So that goes really to the, um, uh, to the point of shrinking your long-term resource because, right. you know, you will sterilize part of it if you generally, if you mine at a higher cutoff grade. And so, yeah, was, let's just define that for people at home a little more. So sure. if you're increasing your cutoff grade, which means yeah. the, the amount of gold that needs to be in a block of rock to make it worth mining, by that very nature, you're going to cut out a lot of 
a lot of material that you had previously planned on mining. Correct. So that the asset is smaller than it has. There's less. There's less economic gold there or whatever yeah generally less overall gold and you are going to leave you know a bunch of the lowest grade blocks behind where in a more robust environment you might have taken Mm -hmm. them um so these assets are shrinking in some senses in order to drop the costs you need to shrink your asset to focus on higher grade material and they've all had a real competition in the last couple of years, producers, intermediate and senior, on demonstrating that they have the most attractive all-in sustaining cost, right? So, and it's in, it's in that movement to the cost containment, your quickest and easiest short-term lever is always, not always, but almost always cut off grade. Mm-hmm. So, but it comes with longer term implications, and sometimes you don't sterilize resource when you do that, but often you do. So you had an industry that has not really been focusing on um, dedicating a lot of capital to development. You're now seeing consolidation at the at the top end of the industry, which is. Um, you know, the, the barracks and yeah, the barracks and, and Newmonts the... and Gold Corps and, and Rand Golds that is going to result in some optimization of their portfolios. Um, but in the end, it's all of that next tier down from the kind of new super majors that need to be looking around and saying, okay, well, maybe I can buy some assets that are going to be sold from these combinations, but there are. 30 potential acquirers and probably, you know, five or six assets that they all really want to chase. Yeah. And so, you know, you go through that process um, at the end. So a lot of them will wait. And what we're hearing from a lot of kind of strategic investors is it's great. Love that you have some great development projects. We're kind of looking for, you know, current production right now, boost the production profile, which is understandable. But those Um, will get divvied up eventually. Those will get divvied up eventually. And there will be more consolidation, and that consolidation will shake out a few other assets that they're not going to advance. Do you think we'll see that, actually, uh, some consolidation at the mid-tier level? Guys joining up, companies merging, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, I think it has to happen in order for a lot of the, call it 500 million to 1.5 billion market cap mining companies, for them to remain relevant. They are going to need to be, I think, either super high profitability or they're going to need to have a certain size and scale because what we don't talk about is their shareholder base has completely evolved as well right and they are all held by more passive funds than we are so um in some senses there is an opportunity as you know they increase in relative ranking and weight uh, that that passive fund buying has to come in as they grow. And, and a lot of people don't recognize this right now, but it is of immense importance. And I think, to be frank, of immense risk to this industry when you have so much of the, of the shareholding that is getting concentrated in the hands of passive funds that are basically asset allocating on you know one metric, which is relative size, and don't have the ability to provide capital to the sector in a way that, you know, the, the traditional fund management complex was really quite good at. And is one of the big risks here that, you know, these big passive funds that, you know, maybe own big chunks of these companies, 
they need to readjust their portfolio and it's sell gold one day. And well, the, the passive fund's not likely, uh, particularly if it's a if it's a gold ETF. Yeah. Uh, then you know the GDXJ, which we're in. Um, you know, it's a it's a risk every quarter on your relative ranking versus everyone else in the index. So if if you are if you have outperformed, then they will reweight you up, and so they come in and buy some shares at the end of the quarter. If you have underperformed, then they reweight you down on a relative basis, and then they have to sell some shares at the end of the quarter. Um, so uh, that's becoming like certain look in our liquidity. Look at the end of the quarter; there are big, big volume spikes on one day because they announce it, and a week later they trade it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's transparent and it's great, but the the biggest issue is just that allocation of capital toward value creation and you know constructive activities because passive funds don't do that. And so we're seeing that from, of course, strategic investors, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but again, coming back from yep. private equity groups. Correct. So you said something uh, when you were describing what private equity is, uh, and that is that they they typically take a controlling position in the companies they invest in. Is that right? Typically is probably a strong word. I think if you talk to their LPs, they tell their LPs that they are going to have a significant amount of control or outright control. And I think if you talk to their LPs, their LPs would say, we really wish that you could just buy private assets and develop them and then sell them so that you know the LPs don't have to take um, quarterly mark-to-market risk because mm-hmm. they're invested in private equity. And if you invest in, a, in an industrial private equity company, they go and buy companies, and you don't see this volatility. Yeah. What it, what it comes down to in the mining sector, and this was kind of eye-opening for me when I became a private equity investor, but conceptually, um, almost all of the venture capital formation in the mining sector has always been done in the public markets. Yes. And that goes back to, you know, how public markets evolved. And there was always a highly speculative retail investor willing to bet on exploration success because, you know, there's one in a hundred that really hits it big and they all hear about the big success story. And, you know, FOMO, everyone wants to be in it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of how the public markets evolved for exploration and therefore for the rest of the mining food chain. Which is odd because it's almost the exact opposite of, say, tech, which is... It's entirely the exact opposite. It's all private. Yeah, which is you curate these companies privately until such time as you think they're ready for the public market. Do you... This is something, and I'm getting a little off topic, but... Whatever, it's my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But this is something I've spent a lot of time wondering about. Is there a role for that in the mining space? Is there a role for more of a venture-focused fund to incubate these probably exploration or maybe in some cases uh, redevelopment companies and get them to a certain point uh, over probably a number of years and then launch them into a public market the way these VC funds do out of Silicon Valley when they, you know, when the risk, when they've been de-risked to a point where we know they can survive and they can actually maintain the valuation and eliminating a lot of the speculation that occurs in that. Yeah. You know, um, 
I certainly argued for five years as a private equity investor that that was the role of private equity, that the role of private equity was to find private opportunities, incubate them to the point where they were then de-risked enough that you could take them to the public markets. And I think one of the challenges in mining private equity is that real incubation period. It depends on on the company, on the status of their projects, on you know where they are in the development curve. But I think that um, you know the, there's a challenge in convincing people who are already public, because all the venture capital formation has happened in public companies. There's a challenge in convincing shareholders and CEOs of public companies that that's a better way to go. Mm. So we had those conversations every week with companies that would say, well, listen, you know what you really should do? Listen, no one appreciates your value, your existing shareholders. Um, you know, we don't, we, we're happy to have them come along for the ride, but this, this public market is not constructive for you. You should maybe think about what happens if we took this private and then we'll put $50 million into it and that will advance the project. And then at the right time, three, four or five years down the road at certain milestones, you can then look to either privately negotiate with a potential strategic acquirer to have them move it into their portfolio, use their cost of capital to develop it, or in the right circumstances, relist it. So I I think there are a lot of private equity groups that try and do that, but Certainly, the the trap that that Pacific Road fell into quite often was the companies don't want to do that. A lot of the CEOs didn't want the accountability of one shareholder because it's a you know you are there to drive a real degree of accountability and what what you got a boss then you've got a boss you have a very interested shareholder yeah. Um, which can be great if everyone knows what the rules of the game are going in. But, you know, historically, I think a lot of CEOs in the mining sector from, you know, very junior exploration companies to, you know, to large cap just kind of want nameless, faceless shareholders. They want someone that they can, you know, go have one or two marketing meetings with a year and, you know, give them 30-minute updates and feel good about it. The reality is, you know, it's that accountability that uh, I think has been one of the biggest challenges. And, you you know, it's, yeah, I, you can see all kinds of examples. Um, you know, unfortunately for our industry, there are all kinds of examples where you have companies that act without what I think is really proper accountability to their shareholders. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more in terms of the relationships of these funds have, these big private equity funds, these big uh, position holders with the management teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what do you view as the role? Is it to give them money and then check in once a quarter and make sure they're pointing in the right direction? Or is it is it a, a close involvement in day-to-day management or yeah. something in between where, I mean, I, I assume, uh, having never worked in private equity, that it... <clears throat> Probably depends on the firm and the people involved, but what's in your experience have you found to be effective and to be the reality of the situation? Yeah, so I, I, like all things, I think it's a continuum, Jamie. It's, uh, um, I think the ideal is uh, a very close relationship where the management and the board of the company understand and agree with the strategic direction um, 
and the investor agrees with the strategic direction of the company. Everyone talks about that, sets milestones uh, on how you're going to measure achievement and progress in that strategic direction, and uh, sets compensation structures that align the shareholders and the management's interest with achieving those objectives. And, you know, I think one of the situations in which we did that reasonably well when we were at Pacific Road and we stepped into Luna Gold, um, uh, which, you know, through a series of mergers is now uh, Equinox Gold and uh, the asset that we really believed in and kind of helped save from bankruptcy was the Arizona mine, which is supposed to be pouring gold any day now. We're waiting for the press release to come out. A company you're very familiar with. Um, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's one of the things that we did pretty well when we went in there was sit down with uh, management. And we actually had a management change, but I think we had pretty good alignment with both sets of management and with the board that here's the game plan. You know, part of it is we're investing in you people and in these assets, but most importantly, we're investing in this game plan. And so we're going to monitor the game plan and, you know, we're going to align the compensation based on, on, uh, on achieving results of that game plan. And when, uh, when uh, Christian and David and the team joined, um, which I think was in 2016, and we spent a lot of time actually thinking about what is that alignment and what's that structure. So it, they, you know, they were writing big checks coming in, which is always what you want to see as an investor when you have management coming in. Um, but we also spent a lot of time thinking about what are those milestones and having PSUs that basically um, triggered on major de-risking events through the life of the project. So that was, I, I think that was actually pretty effective. So that's that's kind of one one angle of it. Listen, there are some who are very much, if you can buy the whole company, then it's command and control and you have the PE fund essentially acting as, you know, an executive chair. Yeah. Um, and the management team then, you know, executing a game plan. Um, but you have a lot of PE funds and, and where they've taken a bit of criticism from their LPs, a lot of PE funds who sort of, um, not so much that they viewed their role as, you know, 19.9% in a board seat, um, but that kind of became, in good times where companies had access to capital and alternatives, that was kind of the company's dream situation. So we have a big shareholder, big enough, you know, we want to know what you think, but not so big enough that you can tell us what to do. Yeah. And you have the appearance of control, but really not much control. So for a given fund, what do you what do you think is the ideal size for an investment? Do you do you own nineteen point nine percent? Do you own fifty percent? And then in addition to that, how many companies do you have in a portfolio? Do you have one, five, twenty? Uh I think if you are pitching yourself as an as a hands on active management mm-hmm. fund, um you know, at Pacific Road, we had a, a goal of kind of six to eight. Per fund, yeah. Per fund. Um, and you want to concentrate your bets because making a $2 million investment in this company takes just as much time, probably more time, than making a $50 million investment in a different company. Yeah. Right? 
So, uh, you know, that was a $500 million fund. So think about 10% of your fund versus, you know, uh, 1% or 2% of your fund. So how much of your work then in these funds is choosing the investment versus managing the investment? Uh, um, it kind of evolves over the life cycle mm. of the fund. So... Um, as you are raising money and once you've raised money and are in a period of, you know, no assets, but aggressive deployment, then that's kind of the period of maximum asset selection focus. So you spend a lot of time working up investment opportunities and talking to people, finding good assets, doing diligence on them, understanding them, believing them, and then trying to structure a deal that the company would want. So that's the fun part, probably. No, you know what? <laughs> it's different uh, Different strokes for different folks. Um, one of my uh, former partners, Mike Sturziker, used to have a, a great um, dynamic of it that he used to talk about, which was uh, there's the finder, the minder, and the grinder. And different people are very good at different things. Some people are great project originators, but may not be great executors. And some executors are not great long-term relationship people. And, you know, working with management teams and working through the politics of board dynamics and things like that. But they can get things done on the ground. But you can get things done on the ground. So, you know, I think you kind of broadly define the the skill set that you need in an investment firm as, you know, finding, minding, grinding. So I think that is a good uh, segue to a question. Which one are you? Oh. <laughs> Uh, I would probably put myself, you know, we're all shades of gray on some of them. Uh, but if I had a strength, I think my strength was more in the finding. Um, uh, you know, I think I was, uh, was capable enough at the minding and at the right times I can grind with the best of them. But I think, you know, it was the origination project uh, analysis, seeing the opportunity where other people don't, that I think was, uh, was one of the things that I did better than the other two. So your role has changed a lot over the last year or so. Indeed. You are no longer an allocator of capital. I'm you a seeker, are aggressive seeker of capital. <laughs> and a manager of a company. So what are some of the skill sets that you picked up from decades in both private equity on the buy side and then banking on the sell side and as an analyst and, and everything else that you think qualify you now to, to run your own junior company and to, to, be, you know, to be the company, the entrepreneurial side? Yeah, you know, that's uh, an interesting question that was asked a lot when uh, I first came in to meet with uh, one of our directors, David Shaw, who was the interim CEO, and I, you know, I kind of came to this role um, not knowing a lot of the people involved. I hadn't really worked with Keith before. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't and know many of the other directors. That is Keith Newmeyer, the chairman of the, the company. Chairman, is that right? Yeah, and yes. the CEO of First Majestic. Uh, and Keith is a, is obviously a great entrepreneur and a guy who started a couple of very successful companies. Um, uh, so, yeah, the first question they asked when I showed up, you know, as an ex-corporate finance and private equity guy is what makes you think that you're actually capable of running a company? And listen, I think I think um, almost, you know, 
irrespective of, of the business that you are in, businesses, when you're bringing leadership to a business, it requires a few things. And number one is setting a strategic direction. Where are we going? Uh, number two is making sure that you can get the best team on the field that you can. And it's developing and enabling and guiding and coaching and mentoring your people. Uh, and I think we did a lot of that, you know, at Pacific Road. I did a lot of that as, uh, as a banker. And I think the highest testament to my capability of that is just to look around the industry at a lot of the great people that I have had the privilege of working with over my career who've gone on to, you know, some wonderful things uh, between, you know, Jason Hines and Justin Cochran, and Mal working with me here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a great team at National that, you know, kind of spread its wings to go off to do a bunch of amazing things. So um, I think that's, uh, that's certainly an element of it. Um, there's an element of allocating scarce resource, which you always have to do, you know, whether it's in a corporate finance role. Um, you can't chase every deal. You got to focus where you think you can win. Uh, as an investor, you don't have unlimited dollars. You got to focus on where you think you can deploy. And as a manager of a company, you need to look at the activities that you think are going to generate the most value, not necessarily market value, but the most intrinsic fundamental value in your projects and allocate capital toward getting those done. You know, in your previous roles, you've had the advantage of seeing, you know, being part of wins and seeing a lot, meeting a lot of great people. But you've also had the advantage of seeing a lot of people fuck it up somewhere along the way. Um, are there any sort of lessons you've learned and things you've seen that you are actively trying to avoid with first mining? Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. First and foremost, uh, I think you need to, you know, be very, very focused on your spend when you don't have cash flow and your only source of, uh, of funding is from your shareholders. And we're just going through this funding now and we have been blessed with, a, with an outstanding shareholder base that's been very supportive of us and patient. Because mm-hmm. we have a lot of shareholders who have come in, you know, in the 2016, 2017 timeframe who like the assets, you know, believe in the strategy, believe in the team, but um, have had a pretty rough ride to get here. And we have a lot of those shareholders who are coming in to support us in this financing. And we really, really appreciate that. You know, I think it's worth touching on because first mining is kind of an interesting story in that it's had a very monumental strategic shift over the last year or so. Uh, You know, when I first heard of the story, it was pitched somewhat as a metal bank, right? Metal bank, They were buying up assets that had value in the ground. It was a shitty market. They weren't going to try to develop them right away. They were going to find that intrinsic value and wait until the right time to do something with it. Yeah. And now we're at that time. And now we're at that time. And, you know, part of the, the challenge, more of a challenge in messaging than I would say, you know, actual execution. But part of the challenge of the last, of the last year has been um, communicating that transition from Mineral Bank where, you know, the strategy, which was a sound one at the time, which was gather as many good projects as you can, 
But that was also communicated as gather as many projects as you can. And the great thing is we're not going to spend any money on them. No, we're just going to, you know, put them in the vault and then gold will go to 2000 and we'll sell them and we'll all make money. Um, you know, they're, uh, the company did a really good job of asset accumulation. They mm-hmm. really did. And I think if there's one if there's one challenge to the mineral bank strategy that they had, it's that they bought good projects. You know? And that seems kind of counterintuitive, but if they'd bought really marginal projects <coughs> with really low grade and huge resources, mm-hmm. um, we wouldn't be where we are today because you wouldn't be spending money on those projects yet. You'd be right, waiting for right. a trajectory. But what they bought, you know, with Springpole is a bona fide potential tier one project in a great jurisdiction. What we have with Goldlund is, you know, I think one of the most developable good grade open pits in Canada. So what is a tier one asset in your mind? I think that's worth defining. Yeah, yeah listen, I, I uh, use tier one asset um, probably a little bit liberally um, relative to a strict Barrick definition, but Springpool's not far, right? You look at how they would rank tier one assets, and in my mind, tier one asset meaningful enough for a production profile of, uh, of a Barrick or a Newmont Gold Corp um, it's going to have the capability of producing in excess of 400,000 ounces a year. It's got a 5 million ounce plus uh, resource slash reserve base. And it can have all in sustaining costs in the, you know, I would say lowest half because lowest quartile in the industry is, I think, a little bit of a blessing of history in geology. And it's in Ontario. And it's in a jurisdiction where, uh, you know, I think it's one of the best jurisdictions to permit, build, and operate mines. You know, it's, it's not much more than 100 kilometers from Red Lake. And they've been mining gold for a long time in Red Lake. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people in that area of northwestern Ontario um, that, you know, have worked in the resource industry their entire life. There's lots of great skilled tradespeople who've been living in the communities there and building communities, you know, in what a lot of the country would consider the bush for, you know, tens and tens of years. So, uh, you know, I think particularly, you think about Goldlund, which I don't think a lot of people appreciate our Goldlund project for what it is, but open pitable in, you know, a sub six to one strip pit is something that is unique in Canada for its development. And and the project sits literally, the access is right off the main highway between Dryden, which is a great hardworking town built around a pulp mill, lots of hardworking, skilled trades people there, and Sioux Lookout, which is really the main community service center for all of the remote indigenous communities to the north. So you have every government service that you could need there. And that is quote-unquote, your second asset as well. Oh, second, yeah. yeah. Listen, I I think we just need to spend a lot more time telling people what it is and benchmarking it against other developable projects because it benchmarks really well. So that means really sort of communicating where it stands next to its competitors. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So we're coming up on time now, but Mm -hmm. there's a few things I actually wanted to touch on before before we call it quits. Um, you know, doing a little bit of research for this interview, 
I heard that you, in your younger days prior to banking, had done a lot of traveling, mm. actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, were you in Russia when the ruble collapsed? Am I right on that? Uh, well, the ruble collapse took a long time. Uh, I spent about three months in Russia in 1997. Mm-hmm. So it was a really fascinating time, kind of at the end of the Yeltsin era before... Uh, kind of before the Putin era had started. So, um, you know, one of the things that's, that was uh, super informative for me and, and an experience that I really carried with me through my life, which part of it gives me some real conviction in the gold business and gives me some real concern around all the talk that we are hearing now about um, modern monetary theory. Anyone who's hearing MMT on a regular basis, like... You're seeing it pop up almost every week in the in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to St. Petersburg uh, to study Russian, which basically goes back to the fact that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, was uh, Mennonite, but from a Russian Mennonite community in in southern Russia, and they left just after the revolution, literally with whatever they could sew into the hems of their clothes. And brought over by, um, you know, the, uh, the Mennonite communities in Canada, you know, basically refugees. And they organized boats and organized transport to get a bunch of people from that community onto boats. And then they had to work off their passage yeah. uh, when they landed here. But anyway, um, so I always had an interest in Russian because my grandfather would never talk about that time because it was very traumatic. Like his, his father was taken and tortured and... Um, you know, when you flee a country, you tend to try and... Cut and so he fled as a child. Fled as a child. Yeah, I think he was it. eight or nine. Um, uh, maybe a bit older. But anyway, uh, long story short, um, that sort of started a real interest. And when the Soviet Union started collapsing in 91, 92, um, I was kind of coming... I was in university, coming out of university and watching this with great interest, thinking... You know, is there some business opportunity in in uh, all of this great change? And uh, my grandfather passed away in 1993, and it kind of sparked for me a bit of an interest in just wanting to study the language. And so, anyway, I was in between uh, jobs and was traveling through Asia, but then ended up taking a train from Beijing to Moscow, which was a super cool experience. That's like up through Mongolia, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Trans-Mongolian yeah. Railroad. Yeah. So it was very cool, but ended up in St. Petersburg for three months, basically studying Russian language for four hours a day. Um, and at a time I could actually speak it pretty well. It's most of it's gone now, but, uh, um, you know, I was living there with uh, an old couple who would have been in their mid-60s who were children of the Soviet Empire, right? They were both engineers for their entire careers. Um, Lev had survived the siege of St. Petersburg, and a lot of people don't appreciate St. Petersburg was sieged for like 900 days in World War II, and it, you know, it, the the toll it took, it basically destroyed most families like just about everyone who lived there uh, no one escaped unscathed that's where the germans kind of hold up inside right they Was surrounded yes yeah, surrounded yeah. the city and basically cut it off yeah for 900 days so um a- anyway uh you know these were these were prototypical you know great soviet citizens 
who had worked their whole careers, um, you know, very successfully as engineers, and then got to the point where um, they just hit their retirement and they had their pension of, let's call it, you know, a thousand rubles a month, and they had their apartment, and even Levitt actually got a car, which was amazing. Because in the early 90s, there were not that many cars on the road in, in Russia. So um, fast forward from 1991-92 to 1997, the ruble has basically been let to free float, uh, and it was trading at about 5,000 to the U.S. dollar when I got there. So you just imagine, you think you are set for the rest of your life with a pension at, you know, what was the, the stated exchange rate was one-to-one, right? Yeah. The ruble to the U.S. dollar. So, I mean, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, there's a black market that said it wasn't that. But, um, you know, you kind of think you could live on $1,000 a month, you got your apartment and you got a car. What else do you need? Um, don't worry, they'll be taken care of. And through the course of this economic dislocation, you know, I was living with these people because I would provide them with an income by allowing me to live in their bedroom in a one-bedroom apartment, and they lived in the living room while I was there. Really? Yeah. So, you know, you just think about yeah, think about the the risk and challenge of inflation and devaluation in that we, in our... In our lives, uh, you know, our parents have experienced periods of big inflation, but as a sentient economic being, I haven't because, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, I didn't appreciate, you know, wasn't all that much of a, of a financially, you know, literate person. Uh, and certainly any of the listeners to this who are in their, you know, 30s or 20s have never lived through a period of inflation. But the reality is when it happens... It is a massive transfer of wealth from, you know, the established wealth to uh, the current consumers and government debt. And you start talking about MMT, which is all about don't worry, the central bank can buy your bonds. So, you know, domestic debt doesn't really matter. So you should just, you know, debt fund all of your current spending. That will set the world up for a massive transfer of wealth from receivers of, you know, government services or two receivers of government services from the accumulated wealth of the population, unless you are holding uh, some degree of hard assets or inflation protected, you know, um, assets. So was that part of your thinking in terms of coming to a gold company in particular versus copper or zinc or whatever it is you could have done? Well, I, I think the other metals... The reality is they will, if in, in a global inflationary sense, those commodity prices will inflate. Um, so they're, they're hard assets. They're real assets. I think, uh, you know, you'll have some margin squeeze as inflation works through. But for gold particularly, I just think, you know, we're sitting at a point now where, as I've said to people since I've taken this job, if you imagine... In 2011, when gold was 1800 bucks, and you asked people what they thought the gold price would be if between now and then, right? And it ran to 1800 bucks because the U.S. government was borrowing about a trillion dollars a year coming out of the financial crisis, right? A little bit more in some years, a little bit less in others. But if you said, okay, fast forward to 2019, U.S. government is still borrowing a trillion dollars a year, maybe more. It's increasing. 
U.S. debt is now whatever it is, $23 trillion. Um, and, uh, you know, we're on the verge of trade wars with China. And in the... Oh, by the way, the U.K.'s going to leave the European Union. European Union's, you know, the monetary union's looking a little bit shaky. And uh, in case you missed it, you know, Russia annexed the Crimea in whatever it was, 2015, 2016. Like, if you look at this geopolitical world today, they, they say there's no inflation, but any sense of economic growth, you know, the, the president's urging the Fed to cut interest rates and, and then say, well, don't worry, but there's no inflation that would come from heating up the economy again. If you ask people in 2011 with all of these fact patterns what the gold price would be, if all of these things hit in 2019, they would have said $5,000. So what's holding it back? Do we know? That's a hard question, and I know there's probably a lot of different answers to that, but yeah. do you have a view on that? I, I don't know. Listen, I'm not a, I'm not a, a big conspiracy theorist in um, gold price manipulation. Um, so you don't think it's the Rothschilds or something like no, that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm whoever kidding, I'm whoever kidding. it is, I hope yeah. they stop doing it. Um, I think... In the last couple of years, you've had this emergence of what some people think are um, other safe asset classes, Mm -hmm. right? And I think real estate's been a huge beneficiary of that. But the reality is, we've seen in Vancouver, we're seeing it right now, real estate prices are basically a derivative of interest rates. And uh, that demand, when demand comes out of the market, it can be reflected in price. I mean, you know, prices are going to be down 30% from their highs. That is a real estate collapse in most other people's worlds. Now, mm-hmm. we're not talking about collapse here and calamity, but it's pretty meaningful. Um, you know, everyone thought crypto was going to be the thing that was going to be the, the great preserver of wealth. Well, I think, you know, maybe there's a very niche role for crypto, but I don't think it's going to come to the mainstream. I think when you look at what has proven to be and what's being, you know, used as this safe haven, you don't need to look much further than what other central banks are doing to buy um, a little bit of security. And you look at what the purchases of gold have been by central banks around the world over the last five years. And I didn't really appreciate these statistics until I saw a presentation in Zurich a few, uh, a few weeks ago. It is shocking and, you know, uh, enthusiasm building for those of us in the gold business, but kind of terrifying so from a global they, geopolitical standpoint. Are they loading up on physical gold now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Russia, China. Uh, but it's it's the list of other countries that are continuing to accumulate <laughs> that, you know, a great website to look at. You look at the at Sandstorm's website, uh, mm-hmm. and Nolan kind of walks through the why gold, uh, why you should own gold or exposure to gold piece. It's actually one of the best most concise, um, you know, investment theses for gold that I've seen. And, um, you know, there is this risk of the de-dollarization of the global economy. And I don't think anyone in the U.S. has any idea of how, you know, quickly and how aggressively that's being pushed outside of the U.S. What's the alternative to the dollar? That's a good question. Yeah. You know what? If you ask people in 
China and Russia, they'll have an answer. Yeah. They'll have an answer. And it's going to be gold and it's going to be, you know, oil and it's going to be other things. So it's going to be commodities. It's going to be commodities, I think. Are you seeing, you know, you come from an institutional background. I'm sure you know money managers all over the world at this point. Are you seeing the generalists investors starting to peek their ears up and start thinking about getting back into hard assets again, getting back into the golds and the copper and, and the other things again? Uh, generalist investor, I think your general, you know, when I think of generalist investor, I think of someone managing a, you know, a balanced equity fund. Um, we haven't really seen it, but in our uh, market cap size, we're not the first ones to see it. You'll mm-hmm. see that going into, uh, first you'll see it going into, you know, Franco and Royal Gold and Wheaton. Yeah. And then you'll see it going into, you know, Barrick and Newmont Gold Corp. And then you'll see it kind of trickle down from there. So it's still, that generalist investor still feels a long way from the deep value where developers are, you know, but... I just look historically, the average developer you look over a cycle would trade somewhere between, you know, 50 bucks and 100 bucks an ounce in the ground for, you know, kind of construction ready type numbers. What are we seeing today? Uh, average for a basket of developers that we look at is 35. So it's about a 3x to get to what I'd call a peak cycle, you know, developer multiple on gold resource ounces. Um, and, uh, you know, you look at where first mining's trading, we're at 10 bucks an ounce. So with a portfolio of real projects in great jurisdictions, we're like three and a half X just to revert to the mean <laughs> on value of where developers are. And that's part of this disconnect as we've gone from mineral bank to, you know, developer. So, so I think a lot of that would be my guess was Investors want to look for, to in a company that they can safely wait it out in, in terms of that they're not going to get diluted over the next six months or the next year or whatever it takes for this correction to occur. Yep. Why is that you guys? I Listen, I think it's us because we have projects of strategic and fundamental value that are going to attract the capital necessary to advance them. And I've spent my whole career... I'm not a momentum guy. I'm not a, you know, um, I'm not a technical trading guy. I am a fundamental value guy. I've spent my entire career trying to understand fundamental value and trying to, you know, help companies surface that fundamental value. And I think the one thing I can tell you with this portfolio of assets that we have, it is an enormous amount of fundamental value. These are assets that, with the time and capital to get them to the point where you will surface that value, they will be worth an order of magnitude more than they are right now. So, you know, I think if you're an investor looking around and you say, okay, well, I'm going to go into the developer space, you need to be later stage developers, which is great, but... um, I will tell you, having been a private equity investor, having funded a few companies through, like, into production, through construction and into production, it rarely goes without hiccups, you know? Yep. Even uh, a great company that we had funded a long time ago called Aurelia Metals, developing a, you know, 1,000 ton per day underground mine, not particularly challenging, but the company 
basically was on the verge of insolvency at one point. And then, lo and behold, you know, a year and a half later, it turned the corner and was had paid back most of its uh, most of its construction debt in like three quarters. So, uh, commissioning is hard, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you're holding something right now into this commissioning phase, I don't know. I would be tempted to be maybe taking a bit of money off the table on on a you know a later stage development asset. Maybe not all of it, if you really like the company, but if that's trading at 0.5 to 0.7 times NAV, or it's trading at 100 bucks an ounce, maybe take a little bit of that money off the table and look at a good portfolio of assets that's trading at 10 bucks an ounce that you see that kind of, you know, 3x lift just in reversion to the mean. So, um, yeah, listen, I think our job is to find the investors who will give us that runway. I think we have strategic investors that are noticeably absent from our shareholder registry. We have institutional investors that are noticeably absent from our shareholder registry. And part of it is just, you know, it's a bit of a new team. Um, you know, we've made some really important additions with Ken Enquist, with Mal Karvovska, um, to, uh, to supplement what was already a great team here. And I was very, very happy when I arrived to see you know, the caliber and, and quality of people that we have and dedicated people that we have. Um, but, you know, I think we're at the point now where I've been here long enough. Uh, you know, the rest of the team is coming together. We've got a good understanding of the game plan, and we can actually go out, articulate that, and people can then judge us against the execution of what we're going to do. All right. Well, Dan, we're just over an hour now, so I want to be respectful of your time, and I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. So if people want to learn a bit more about first mining, where should they be looking? Uh, First best stop is uh, is our website, www.firstmininggold.com. You know, it's in the the process. It'll be seeing some changes over the course of the next little bit, but that's, uh, that's a great place to start where... You know, we have our corporate presentation up there, and if uh, if you go through that, still have some questions, uh, feel free to get in contact with us. Uh, all of the contact information is right there. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to sit down today. I mean, this was great for me. I kind of uh, it was a good opportunity for me to answer a few questions that I'd always had about private equity and things that I was learning or wanting to learn more about. And I've enjoyed hearing about the projects and everything you guys are doing at First Mining. So. Thanks again. That's great. No, thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Jim. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.